Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you haven't already rated and reviewed the Single Tracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show. And if we choose yours, you'll get a free Single Tracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now, write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guests are Rob Martin and Tori Heschler. Rob is the managing director at Outdoor Sports Insurance, a Horizon agency program dedicated to working with sports equipment manufacturers and retailers. And Tori is a senior vice president at Horizon agency and works with all aspects of the Outdoor Sports Insurance program. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're excited to be here. All right. Well, whenever someone asks me if I enjoy my job, I always like to joke that it sure beats working in insurance, which I always just assume it must be a boring job. So is it? Let's hear from you, Rob. Sure. Yeah, we like to use that joke as well. But it oh, is, really? Um, <laughs> yeah. I can't take credit for it. Oh, man. No, uh, it's it's really anything but boring. You know, we're working with retailers and brands across uh, the outdoor, the bicycle and the snow sports space. And it's really, um, you know, a relationship focused business. We're passionate about these sports. We participate in these activities. And the funnest part of the best part is that we're working with business owners that that, you know, are, are in this because they love these sports as well. They're great clients. We feel like we're a part of the industry and um, and uh, we have fun with it every day. Yeah. And honestly, in in this space of insurance, it's never really boring because when you have to deal with the types of claims that we see coming in from time to time, it certainly keeps it interesting and definitely keeps us on our toes. Reminded of like the, what is it, farmer's insurance commercial where they show like all the weird claims yeah, that exactly. people have had like so i guess i mean are there those like do you, do you get to see kind of weird stuff that that ends up happening to people oh all the time all the time yeah it's kind of um it's kind of interesting to see all of the ways that people can find to hurt themselves or find or find ways that they can really damage other property i think at one point we got uh, a claim where a rogue ski rack rolled down a hill and into someone's brand new car. Oh, <laughs> so wow. Things like that can, yeah, as I said, keeps us on our toes. Yeah, interesting. Well, Rob, as an insurer who works with outdoor retailers around the country, I imagine you have some insight into some of the challenges that local bike shops are dealing with right now. One of the types of coverage I understand that your company offers is repair liability. Uh, is that something that comes up often with bike shops where customers or somebody is making a claim because the repair that they had done was not done properly? It does. And, you know, usually what happens is someone gets hurt and they will sue the the manufacturer as well as the retailer. 
And then we have to figure out really what's happening. Is it a product defect? You know, did a part break? And that really is the manufacturer's or the brand's product liability? Or or did the shop do something wrong? You know, did something not get tightened properly? Did a quick release not get, uh, you know, back in place? And, and so uh, the repair liability, you know, alongside uh, doing rentals and demos is really what's makes us unique and that in that we're able to cover those things and that we really do manage the risk of those things through working with the shop owners uh and training and uh but but we definitely see you know dozens of claims every year involving um the maintenance of bicycles and the repairs of bicycles so it's uh it's something we really have to pay attention to and something we really have to educate the shop owners about yeah well it sounds like you know we're talking about serious issues here too, uh, with people potentially being injured. And this goes beyond, I guess, more than just like, oh, you know, you put that part on and it, it cracked because you tightened it down too much or, you know, I, I want a refund kind of thing. Like this is, this is stuff that rises to another level, I guess. Yeah, it really does. The injuries are serious, uh, sometimes catastrophic. And, you know, if the shops made a mistake, it, it can be a uh, a catastrophic claim event for them. And, you know, our, our goal is always to be able to provide affordable insurance to these shop owners. Uh, but we've got to keep the carriers that we use profitable. And so the, the risk management element of making shops, making sure shops are doing everything right is, is super important. Yeah. And are you working, how closely are you working with the shops to kind of make sure that, that they are doing these repairs properly? Is that part of, of your role to, as you said, kind of educate them or are you just educating them about the risk? No, we get, we get very involved on the, on the risk management side through education. You know, we work very closely with them on their waivers and assumptions of risk to make sure that the language in there is going to be as useful a tool as, as we have to defend them. Got an online university that's that's just based on risk management surrounding the bicycle industry and the snow sports industry. Mm-hmm. So we're very active in that. And that's kind of what makes us unique. We really, you know, we're not just selling them insurance, but we, we act as that risk manager for them and want them to be better, safer shops and keep their customers safe. Yeah. How far down into the weeds do you get? Like, would you go to a shop owner and say, hey, hey, look, if you're going to have somebody like kind of new working on bikes, like this is what you need to be watching out for. Or like, do you recommend that they personally kind of verify repairs before they go out the door? Or or is that something that you kind of leave up to the shops and, and hope they do it the right way? You know, it varies. But the more the shop engages with us, uh, the better off it is. We have things like assembly checklists. We have uh, crash packs so that if somebody does get hurt, we get all the documentation, you know, we documentation and record keeping are, are crucial for us to be able to defend these shops. And so we like to, you know, we like to give them the tools to, to do that. And also the tools to go through and double check and have checklists and, and everything else when they are building a bike or when they're repairing a bike. Mm. Yeah. Well, Tori, Rob sort of mentioned uh, waivers and I think you mentioned equipment rentals as well. And I know that rentals are pretty common in the ski industry where, you know, a lot of people, they might participate just once or twice a year. And so a lot of them don't own their own equipment. Are you starting to see more rentals in the bike arena now that 
uh, resorts are opening up for summer? Is, is bike rentals becoming a bigger thing? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's kind of becoming inherent across the board, especially inside of the retail space. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's just an awesome way to get some additional foot traffic into these shops. Um, bikes are not cheap. And so it's also just an excellent way for people to have access to this sport. And as we've seen in the last year, everyone was really cooped up because of the COVID lockdowns and people just wanted to get outside. And so I think when it comes to rentals, um, that's an excellent way to achieve that and at an economical price point. But in addition to that, you know, this has really become an excellent source of additional revenue for all of our stores. Um, you know, I would say probably like five or 10 years ago, we would see a breakdown of sales with any of our shops where it was definitely more heavy leaning towards the sale of inventory. Whereas now it's becoming extremely equitable where it could be even 50, 50 sales coming from inventory as well as revenue generated from the rental of the equipment and the bikes, Yeah. And then as far as the parks go, you know, that's kind of an area where we don't get involved as much, but certainly there has been an increase in these bike parks and that type of thing. And so we definitely have to take a little bit more of a closer look Mm -hmm. at what the end use of the rentals is going to be if they're going to go to these parks that they're engaging in the proper like safety measures. And again, that Mm. there is that proper sign off with the waivers and so on and so forth, because those types of injuries can definitely be more of like the big ticket items, if you will. Right. That's interesting, too. I hadn't thought of that, but it makes perfect sense from your end to kind of distinguish between a shop that's, you know, say located where I live in Atlanta that rents bikes to, you know, families or like somebody visiting from out of town versus, you know, at a bike park where people are taking their bikes up on a lift and and going down really steep stuff. (laughs) Um, So do you, do you price that differently? I mean, I imagine you would. Well, not necessarily because that's also one of the unique aspects of our program is that those exposures are just built into the coverage. We will probably spend more time on the underwriting side of it. And in some cases, we may not even want to consider those types of exposures. You know, when it comes to the resorts and that type of thing, you know, there's a little bit less, there's not as much control there because a lot of times those types of activities are administered through the resorts. And, uh, and since we don't really do the insurance for the resorts themselves, it's harder for us to get involved in more of the risk management side of things. Uh, but certainly, you know, I, I won't say that we don't have those types of exposures in the program. Yeah. At some points, potentially they can be priced higher depending upon what the allocation of the risk is. If it's more incidental then as I say, it just, it kind of goes into the price of the overall coverage itself. If it's something that is more of a focus of of the operation as a whole, then yes, it it does tend to go into a separate silo of, of underwriting and then could potentially be subject to maybe more steep standards from a cost standpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that you're seeing more of these bike rentals, uh, more shops engaging in this and, you know, bike parks, I'm sure play a role in that, but it also, you know, we're hearing that younger generations, uh, are less interested in like owning stuff, kind of like you mentioned, you know, owning a bike or skis and more just for the experience, you know, I'm going to go bike a few times a year. Um, and so, yeah, well, why not just rent one instead of buying one? 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. As I said, it's just, it's really given a much larger population access to the sport. And what we've also seen as, as a really cool trend is the introduction of the e-bikes, which I think has also allowed for people who may not have been as active in the past. It makes the sport of cycling a little bit more accessible to them as well. They don't have to be as worried about going up a steep incline or going over terrain that would otherwise be a little bit harder or maybe possibly more physically taxing, um, you know, outside of having that assist. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly kind of opened the door to this sport to a much larger population, which is excellent. Yeah. Well, switching gears a little bit, I see that your company also offers coverage, uh, for people who operate bike tours. Um, and maybe, maybe this is shops too. It's kind of a, an outreach that they do, you know, hosting group rides or that kind of thing. To me, it seems like there are easily a million things that go, could go wrong on a bike tour, you know, especially if we're talking like an overnight, like, you know, kind of backcountry tour or things like that. How do you price something like that? just without knowing sort of everything that could possibly go wrong. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's first off, it is important to make the distinction. If it's a shop that just has a touring exposure as like an ancillary exposure as part of the shop's overall offerings versus a company that operates exclusively as a touring company. Um, so again, if it is a shop that just happens to have an ancillary touring exposure, again, that is something that is essentially just built into the coverage that is offered through the Outdoor Sports Insurance Program. Mm -hmm. If, however, it is an outfit that just does the exclusive touring, the types of factors that are contemplated into the premium, it certainly is, you know, what are the number of ride days? What are the number of people who are going to participate in the tour? You know, certainly we will take a look at what types of bikes, like if it's a mountain biking tour versus an e-bike tour versus just a standard road bike tour, all of those will have, uh, you know, they kind of introduce their own set of hazards. Mm -hmm. And then we also take a look at, you know, how well is, is the touring company keeping track of the people who are on the tour while it's happening? You know, we have had instances where they may lose somebody along the way, and that can <laughs> definitely cause a little bit of heartburn. You know, and we also want to make sure that uh, tying back to the waivers and making sure that they are really getting the proper sign off. All of those factors are what will play into what the ultimate cost of the insurance is going to be. And then, of course, one of the major factors as well is what is the annual revenue that typically gives the insurance carriers a good idea of what is the level of penetration that is happening within that industry sector. You know, how much are, are their sales? It kind of gives them a good idea of like, what is the size of this operation? So yeah, all, all of that, all of that fun stuff comes into what's coming out of pocket. Yeah. Well, is there like a formula? I mean, is this more art than science or is it like kind of a combination of both in terms of how you price different risks? Oh God, it's, it is, uh, I would argue probably 99% science. It, it is an algorithm. So, uh, the people who come up with these policies and the price points, they're called actuaries. And these are basically like status, they're statisticians that can come up with these crazy predictive models, um, that again, take into account all of these different 
factors and they all have an impact on what is going to be the ultimate likelihood of an injury or any type of likelihood of any sort of loss. Um, And then they also factor in, you know, what are the costs of certain types of injuries? You know, someone falling off of their bike and just if they kind of get a cut, that's not going to be nearly as expensive as somebody who goes head over heels over the handlebars and shatters a collarbone. And so these are all going to have different costs that factor into where should the premium points be set. So yeah, it is uh, uh, to peek behind the curtain of how insurance is really priced is getting into a world of spreadsheets and uh, (laughs) all types of math that quite frankly is a little bit outside of my own personal expertise. But uh, yeah, it is very involved. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, you mentioned as an example, like if you're, if someone were to price, um, insurance coverage for a tour operator and, and they're plugging in, like, is this a road bike or is this a mountain bike? And I imagine that's going to give you two different numbers. And so mm-hmm. is that data proprietary? Cause I know it, that would be fascinating for a lot of us to understand, like, you know, how much riskier is mountain biking than road biking, you know, based on this enormous data set that somebody must have access to is that proprietary and and yeah how does how does that data even get gathered you know i don't know that it's proprietary per se that's actually a really interesting question because i think when it comes to access like where do they get this data what are the data banks mm-hmm. it really is i guess you know, I actually come from an underwriting background. I was an underwriter with an insurance carrier for about six and a half years. And a lot of that data is based off of historical data. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily know if it's something where they're getting access to like the cost of like the health costs, you know, if they somehow get their, if they get their hands on, like, what are the medical bills and that type of thing. But somehow they access this, you know, there has to be some sort of data bank out there where they are really collecting all of that. I mean, there are various organizations out there. The one that comes to mind just from a property standpoint is a, is a, is an organization called Marshall and Swift. And, uh, that is an organization that is, they really are just this massive data bank and it's, it's, it's a paid subscription. We have access to it for certain aspects of their information as it ties to property insurance. Cause we can get an idea of, you know, if there's a property located near a coastline, then obviously we will understand what the likelihood is that they're going to have some kind of a hurricane event. Um, so yeah, there are, there are these data banks out there and I would assume that that is really where the carriers pro- probably go to get that type of data that would factor into their algorithms. But um, I don't think it's really proprietary so much as just something that you would know within inside the industry and if you're willing to pay for those types of access points, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And and let me just add too. within our program, we sit down every year with our carriers and we look at how our our book of business performed. And so um, renewal pricing may go up or it may stay flat depending on, you know, our our one year, three year, five year loss history uh, with with that particular carrier with inside this program. And so we we do have an active role there to to gauge how successful the program is is doing and, and how it's going to affect pricing for our customers. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Rob, are there any areas within the outdoor industry that your company, for whatever reason, has just decided that you're not going to insure them because they're too risky? Uh, 
Um, I mean, yes and no. We we try and help everybody, right? So if if somebody gets referred to us or or finds us through one of our association endorsements or or the various ways that people uh, hear about us, we want to help them. And you know, our job is to match them with the right insurance carrier. And so there are programs out there for things like hang gliding, and uh, but there are things that are really difficult to insure too. We've seen an uptick in what uh, is being referred to e-foil boards. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with what that is, but it's a it's a battery operated uh, foil board, you know, that you ride above the the waves in in open water, and um, and those things are challenging. We kind of stay away from the resorts because the resorts. There's a couple of good programs out there uh, that really do a good job managing the risk and, and, you know, having the engineers that look at the chairlifts and things like that. So there are certain things that we refer to other insurance specialists that are better suited for that and, and have relationships with carriers like we do for ski shops, bike shops and outdoor shops. So uh, we see a lot of crazy stuff and um you know, try and help everybody out. And if we can't help them out, we want to point them in the right direction so that they can find the right solution. Okay, cool. So Rob, earlier you mentioned uh, waivers and helping shops kind of develop those or at least, you know, kind of give them feedback on them. Uh, What on the other end, what do you think consumers should know about signing equipment, rental or service waivers? Like when you're signing one yourself, like what are you looking at? Or, or is there, could you even think of a situation where maybe you haven't signed one because you read it and you're like, whoa, I'm not, I'm not signing away that, that right. Yeah. I mean, you usually end up signing them because you want to participate in whatever you're doing, you know, uh, if you go uh, heli skiing, for instance, that waiver is intense, right? But but your, your choice is to either go on the trip or not go on the trip. Um, and the intent of the waiver is is uh, you know it's it's an assumption of risk, and it's just the the customer consumer user saying, I do assume the risk. I understand there are inha- inherent dangers to to cycling or or snow sports or whatever the situation is. But it's important to know that if the shop really makes a mistake, you're, you know, they're, they're still going to be on the hook for that. Uh, and that's where our risk management training with the shops comes in. You know, the waivers are really just a tool that we use to defend. Um, and they're, they're super useful tools, but they're not insurance policies. And so, right. you know, without them, we wouldn't be able to insure uh, shops that do rentals and, and do tours and group rides and all these sorts of things. So it's really important for that consumer to have assumed that risk. And, and that's the intent of the waivers. Uh, they don't always, you know, hold up depending on the state, depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. But they are really useful tools for us when we do have to defend a, a claim or an injury, um, you know, when the shop or the brand is named in, in litigation. Yeah. Yeah. So is it safe to say that waivers, they're not, they're, they're never like bulletproof, right? Like they're never, you know, when you sign one that doesn't say that, that you assume every single risk and, you know, there's no way that, that you can hold the shop accountable. And on the other side, you know, the shop can never write one in a way that, that they aren't accountable. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, if you rent a bike and the bike breaks, that's not the risk that you assume by signing that waiver. Mm, okay. 
But if you just fall down and go boom and want to sue somebody for your injury, you know, then then those waivers typically do hold up because because you assume the risk. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So we should be comfortable signing them and not worried that we're giving away rights we shouldn't be giving away. But at the same time, we have to be responsible for for ourselves. Right. You know, we, we see uh, situations a lot where customers, they typically end up being attorneys, uh, want to <laughs> cross out certain sections or alter that waiver. And we really preach to the to the shops that, you know, that's that's just not a customer that you want to have because it, it just throws up, you know, immense red flags that that, you know, if anything goes wrong, their intent would be to sue that shop for any injuries they may they may suffer. Yeah. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. What what do shops do? Have you heard of situations where the shops just like, you know what, never mind. Like, I'm just not comfortable renting to you. Yeah. Yeah. And they have that right to do so. And, you know, they can send them to a shop down the street and hopefully that shop down the street says the exact same thing. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and they eventually sign. Um, but, um, you know, it's amazing. We had a situation this week where somebody came back in, was injured and, and the shop was reviewing, uh, the waiver with them. They wanted to see it. Uh, and we think they ended up stealing the waiver. And, and now we, we don't have that paperwork. And, and that's really important for us too, is, you know, yes, you need to get the waiver signed, but then the shop has the, the responsibility of making sure that they store it, that we can go back and find it. Oftentimes these claims come in years later, you know, right under the statute of limitations and, um, we've had plenty of claims that would have gone away a lot easier if we, if we could, could have just found the, the documentation. So record keeping becomes a huge, uh, a huge thing that we preach as well in the program. Yeah. Are the, I imagine a lot of it's electronic now. Is that, does that stand up? Is that a legitimate way to collect waivers? Yeah, it is so far so good. You know, the, the courts are, are, um, the electronic signatures are holding up and, and we really like it because of that record retention, right? Whether it's stored in the cloud or whatever the case might be, it makes the shops much more organized in, instead of having to go dig through boxes for, you know, waivers uh, from past years, etc. Huh, interesting. Well, what are some of the biggest financial risks that most bike shops are facing today? Well, it's a myriad of factors. You know, first and foremost, this is a very saturated industry. So just sheer competition, you know, that uh, can really impact all of our shops and certainly the competition that comes from the internet itself. You know, Amazon, I think, has kind of been like the big monster that has had a large impact in the ability of shops to stay current and to attract consumers. Because again, to go back to what you were saying earlier, as far as these younger crowds, I mean, they are very much an online based group of people. Uh, so just from that standpoint, it's um, certainly a challenge. Uh, but then also when it comes to the manufacturers, a lot of them are going the route of just selling straight to the consumer. So there's, in some respects, there's some competition from inside of the industry itself. And I think a lot of shops struggle with that. But then just the fact that any business that is operating in the outdoor space right there in the word outdoor, you're subject to the seasonality 
of this industry. And, you know, for those shops that operate in parts of the country, like up where we are here in Minnesota, where we have winter, it seems like for the majority of the year, uh, you know, even though there are these crazy people up here who will still get on a bike when it's negative 20, but you know, the seasonality that too can really impact it. And God forbid there's a summer where it's raining all the time and that can really be a major challenge. But interestingly, what we saw happen in the last year, especially with COVID, because people were so anxious to get outside, there was just this huge demand inside of the bike space. And the supply chain faced some serious bottlenecks. And I would say, you know, going into like June, as early as June, um, some of our shops were saying we are completely out of inventory and we've contacted our suppliers and the manufacturers and they are completely backlogged and completely backordered. And so that obviously is uh, very concerning when you don't have any product to sell, but you still have the bills to pay. Uh, so yeah, it can be kind of all of these factors that come into it that can really be a risk. Yeah. Well, aside from kind of the supply and demand parts of it too, I mean, are there examples of shops that have had to close down because they weren't properly insured? I mean, that I think for a lot of small business owners, you know, bike shops, especially they are, they end up being like passion projects for people. People start a shop because they love you know, selling bikes. They love riding bikes. They want to get other people into it and serving their customers. And, you know, I think it seems like maybe some of them might not consider the sort of outside risks to that, that are kind of more on the business side. So do you see that happening to to folks where they, they aren't prepared for that and they never thought about, well, what if a customer comes in and, you know, gets hurt because of a repair you made or, you know, something like that is, is, is that a, a something they should worry about? Well, thankfully, that's not something that we have seen really at all within our program because to be a part of our program, we make sure that you know they have the proper coverages from a liability standpoint so that they are truly protected from that third party exposure. Uh, in some cases, you know, obviously when people are looking to cut down on their overhead, yes, insurance is usually one of the first things to get to the chopping block and they're looking for ways to cut down on their on their insurance costs. And in some instances, we have seen it where people will, you know, the primary way to cut down on insurance premiums, especially when you're on a platform is called a business owner's policy, otherwise known as a BOP. Uh, Yeah. Uh, A primary driver of the premium is the property values. And so what they'll do is they'll say, look, I'm going to take my property values down a hundred grand or something. And then God forbid they have a fire or a flood or a hurricane and they try to file an insurance claim. And then we come to find, well, they undercut what was really their true property loss. But no, thankfully, you know, I would say I I have not experienced uh, an instance where a client has had an event where they were underinsured and then as a result had to throw in the keys for their business. Now, in some cases, there have been instances where uh, a policyholder has not paid the premium in time and eventually the policies cancel. And, you know, we do we do as best as we can to notify them and warn them and tell them, you know, hey, this is set to cancel. We really need you to get 
the payment in the door and then we don't hear from them. The policies cancel and then they have an insurance claim and we and and the policy isn't even in force. That is definitely a very precarious situation. There's there's also some forces out there that require them to be insured. You know, their their landlords require proof of coverage. Even the suppliers are requiring proof of coverage now. So if if you want to order anything through Quality Bike Products or QBP, you have to prove insurance. Um, if they have any bank loans, then the banks want to see proof of insurance. And 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 so. Uh, it, it's really hard to be in business without insurance for a bike shop. Right. Sounds like you'd have to try pretty hard to <laughs> to not not be properly insured in this business. Interesting. Tori, you mentioned uh, the you know kind of supply issues with bikes right now, and also the demand. People, everybody, it seems wants bikes, and I've heard stories, a uh, few stories over the last year about bike thefts. And it makes me wonder, are are thefts up? Are they increasing? And are you able to speak to that? Is that something that your, your business insures? Absolutely. Yes. Well, first off, I will say when it comes to the bike space, theft has actually and historically been the primary driver of insurance claim activity. And yes, that is a covered claim under the property form of the policy. But yes, bikes tend to always, you know, I I think it's because they're easy to transport. Uh, We definitely have seen uh, quite a history of the typical smash and grab where they throw a cinder block through the window and grab as much as they can and escape. But certainly, yeah, in the last year and a half, you know, there's a lot of people out there, sadly, that are out of a job and really strapped for cash. And so I think they're turning to those types of those types of criminal activity to get some money in the door. But another emerging trend that we've seen increase quite a bit in the last year or so has been this concept of chargeback activity. And that is an instance where one of our shops will get a phone call or someone will go onto their website and they'll order, you know, a $5,000 bike or a $7,000 bike and, and the shop will process the order and they will ship the inventory. And then like a week later, they will get a call from Visa saying that purchase was made on a stolen credit card, so we're going to charge it back. And so the shop is now not only out of the sale, but now they're out of the bike as well. And and so in those instances, unfortunately, that particular claim scenario is not something that is actually covered by insurance. Oh, wow. um, and so what we try to do is really inform our shops about it and and try to give them a lot of the best practices for how they can avoid something like that. You know, and the idea behind why it's not covered by insurance is because that type of scenario is something that is built into the merchant contract that these shops will have with the various credit card companies. Uh, okay. And so carriers say, look, you have signed up for that. That is basically the cost of doing business. This is on you to be properly vetting each of these larger purchases. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, that's been an, an unfortunate trend that we've seen quite often. And so we've been trying to get really proactive about educating a lot of our shops about, you know, how to avoid that. You know, you, you have to ask for the security code and try to make sure that the zip code aligns with the shipping address and all of these little kind of action steps that they can take to make sure that these larger purchases are actually being made by a valid card holder. Yeah. Wow. That that does seem like a tough one too, uh, that maybe it seems a little one-sided too. You know, these big credit card companies are kind of setting the rules and, and 
relying on smaller businesses to kind of do their some of the security legwork for them. Do their diligence, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. And then also, I I, I thought you were going to say too that maybe people buy the bikes and then falsely claim that that they didn't, you know, or like you know, it's not a stolen card. It's like that was my card, but I'm just lying and saying you never sent me the bike or, you know. Right. Oh, totally. Well, and then, and very often, you know, we have had instances where people will come in to demo a bike and the shop will say, yeah, here, you know, just take it out into the parking lot. And they say, thank you very much. Take the bike. And they're never heard from again. Yeah. Is that, that's something you would cover then, I guess, or no? We do. It's that is a case by case one that can be that can be interesting because, you know, what will. Yes. I mean, in in most cases, it, it can be covered. Um, you know, we we have a special coverage provision on the policies that allow for those types of claims to be covered. But again, you know, we certainly try to work with the shops to make sure that they're doing what they can to really avoid that, you know, maybe ask for some kind of collateral, like, you know, hand us your credit card or your driver's license while you're out in the parking lot with this $7,000 bike. Yeah. And hopefully it's not a stolen credit card that they're handing you. Right. Well, right. Cause that does happen too. We, people can get really crafty and they actually can come in with like a, a, that we actually had an instance where this guy made a, he actually had a card that he had made, um, that went through the reader and it was a totally fake card. And, uh, and yeah, and he, and he took off with some fairly expensive inventory. Wow. This is scaring me away from ever starting a bike <laughs> yeah. shop. And, and it's also making me think I'll pay whatever insurance costs because right, it's, right. it's probably worth it. So another product that your company offers is product liability coverage. So does that just cover potential injuries that consumers might suffer due to an accident involving a product, or does it also extend to things like product recalls or or warranty issues? Right. So those are actually three separate types of concepts. And so when you're talking about just the product liability, that is the insurance that ties to pure product failure and then any ensuing injury or property damage that could happen because of the product itself. And so that is a, that that is its own insurance that we can either essentially build into an insurance policy or for a lot of our manufacturing clients, we have a, kind of a standalone product liability policy that will focus on all of the various facets of that type of exposure. Product recall is another type of insurance and one that I strongly recommend to any of my manufacturers, especially startups, because that is sort of one of the few lines of insurance where the the insurance carrier actually kind of markets it as almost like a second sort of bank account. And that's like really the one area where I would tell people, yes, you can think of insurance as a second bank account and all other facets do not think of insurance that way. But um, (laughs) that is, that is an insurance coverage that will help a manufacturer if, if they get some type of pulse early on that there's something going wrong with the product and they want to take it out of the market prior to word spreading as as we all know, word can spread really fast in this industry. Right. You know, so there is a separate policy for that type of exposure. Product warranty coverage that really is that 
does not really exist because effectively what you're doing is you're asking the insurance carrier to stand behind the quality of your product. And if you're going to go out there and say, this is, you know, a hundred percent safe, or this is a hundred percent whatever. And if you're going to voluntarily make that type of a claim, then it's up to you as the manufacturer to stand behind that. It's not up to the insurance carrier. If you've kind of fudged it, just just for some type of marketing purpose. So product warranty coverage is not really um, a policy that exists in the industry. Yeah. I mean, I guess that makes sense that that an insurance carrier is not going to be able to look at your new carbon wheel set and say, "Yep, that looks that looks pretty solid. I, I think that'll that'll last for a long time. You shouldn't have any warranty issues." Right. Um, exactly, exactly. And so, I mean, and I guess what you know, people tend to call that sort of scenario is like uh, self-insured, right? Like where the the company, you would at least advise them to, you know, hold some money in reserve or some product in reserve or whatever, kind of build that even into the margin of the product, I guess, um, if you do want to offer a warranty like that. Absolutely. And, you know, that's oftentimes the topic that comes up quite a bit when we're talking to our insureds is that, you know, you it's it can sometimes be a bit of a thin line but there is a defining line in between what is an insurable asset versus what is the cost of operating a business and and really what tends to differentiate it is what is something that is unforeseen versus something that can be anticipated. And, um, you know, if it's something that is unforeseen, like you've done everything you can to make sure, you know, you have checked all of the boxes and you've effectively crossed all of your T's, et cetera. Um, and yet the unforeseen happens, that's where insurance would kick in. But if it's something where you are kind of voluntarily opening yourself up to those exposures, again, tying back to the chargeback where it's like you have agreed to the merchant contract. Um, and same thing with a product warranty. Like you are the one saying that this is going to be the perfect product. That's the cost of doing business. And those are the things where the carriers are not going to step in just because you've gone ahead and signed up for all of this exposure, if you will. Yeah. Well, obviously, insurance is big business, and uh, in some cases, I imagine it can can start to get expensive. How much would you say of the cost of like a bike product or a service like a bike park lift ticket or you know repair at a shop? How much of that uh, typically goes toward insurance? You know, it's it, it it's kind of hard to define that. I mean, for the for the brands that are selling bikes, you know, their liability is based on a, a rate per thousand dollars of revenue. That's kind of how those premiums are calculated. And if you're selling, you know, socks, it's it's going to be a lower rate. If you're selling bike helmets or componentry or whatever the case might be, then that rate is is higher. It could be as high as ten percent of of revenue. Um, and, you know, for the retailers or the rental shops, it's really based on, you know, how much inventory do you have in your shop that we're protecting from a from a property standpoint, things like fire and theft. Uh, and then the liability is also, you know, based on revenue, uh, but it's not as cut and dry as it is when we do product liability for brands. 
Um, you know, as far as lift tickets and things like that, again, there's so many other factors and, and there's so many lines of insurance, you know, where we, we're not just selling liability insurance, we're, we're including the property coverage and, and most often we're, we're covering their workers' compensation and their business auto and, uh, you know, for the brand's ocean cargo coverage for the containers on the water. And, and so there's so many different factors that go into it. It's hard to say this is the percentage that, you know, insurance costs for each bike you sell or each bike you produce or each lift ticket you sell. It just depends on so many other factors. And, and, you know, if you're talking about all lines of coverage versus just liability, then, you know, there's, there's so many other things that go into that. Um, You know, payroll is how work comp is calculated. So, uh, there's there's different areas if if they have warehouses those are calculated on square footage and so there's there's a lot of different ways to calculate insurance premiums depending on what it is and what line of coverage it is so I, I guess I can't give you a you know definitive answer on on percentages based on a a bike or a lift ticket or whatever the case might be yeah. Well, if we were talking, say, a $5,000 bike, you know, would, is this in the range of like tens of dollars per bike or is it like hundreds of dollars per bike? Again, if it's if it's the retailer, um, you know, it's it is based on revenue as far as the liability exposure. Um, but probably, you know, on a $5,000 bike, it's, it's, you know, tens of dollars, certainly not hundreds of dollars, um, per bike they sell. But again, we look at the overall contents or what we refer to as business personal property. So we're not looking at each bike. We're saying you've got a, you know, $500,000 of inventory in your store and your property rates are going to be based on, on that and it's bikes, but it's also all the other accessories you sell. It's your furniture and fixtures and your tuning equipment and your rental fleets. And and so you really look at it more on the overall value of the property in the, in the store versus the individual product. Okay. I see. Yeah. And if I, just to kind of add to that as well, the other things that also factor into it, which people sometimes don't necessarily think right away, but it's also where are these shops located? So, because it's not just, it's not just the exposures that come from human error or human exposure. You know, there's also just kind of the environmental exposures as well. So a shop that's located right on the coastline down in like Southern Florida, they are probably going to be subject to a much higher property rate in some instances than a shop that's located in, you know, like up here in Minnesota, even though I should backtrack because up here now we're getting all kinds of hail. But if the store itself is totally damaged, then yeah, then the inventory is also going to be subject to damage. And so there's all of those other extenuating factors that can play into the rates and the cost of insurance as well. Again, hearkening back to that crazy algorithm and these actuaries with their spreadsheets that will factor into all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, based on what you're both saying, you know, it sounds like the lawyers haven't quite won yet. You know, we're, we're not, we're not giving all of our money away to sort of fend that off. <laughs> yeah. They're trying, but, and, and there may be some hassle involved with kind of, you know, thinking through all of this for a business owner or if you're a manufacturer. Um, but on the whole, it sounds like it is, it is pretty reasonable, um, kind of where things are right now. So I want to close out by asking both of you sort of about your personal view toward risk. And I imagine that doing what you do, 
it's, it has to color sort of your, your view of the world, you know, um, in terms of like, you have heard about a lot of terrible things that have happened to people or to businesses. Um, and, and that can be scary. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we, we enjoy getting outside and, and doing things that maybe are a little bit risky. So I'd like to hear from both of you. How do you consider, uh, risk versus reward? And, and are there sometimes in, in your life where you just say, you know what? Like, I know there's a risk and terrible things might happen, but I'm, I'm still going to do it. Well, I'll start by saying I wish people would take more responsibility for their, for themselves. Um, but, you know, both Tori and I stay very close on the claims handling side of things. And, and we're very good at kind of back to your last question at defending these claims, assuming the shops don't make mistakes. Um, but when they do, we defend the claims and, and yes, probably do have a jaded, you know, opinion because we see so many <laughs> frivolous claims. But we also see people get seriously injured doing these things. And, um, you know, you, you see how long it takes to recover and how much it costs to, to treat. Uh, and sometimes they're, you know, uh, for the rest of their life, they're going to live with these injuries. So I think personally, you know, I love to ski. I love to paddle. I, I you know, love to do a lot of things in the outdoors, uh, ride, you know, got a full quiver of bikes in the garage, but I am more careful than than I was probably in my teens and 20s and things like that. You know, part of that's um, being older and easy, easily uh, more easily injured. But but also just, you know, being responsible as a parent and other things. And, you know, I think uh, that line always changes based on on age and your risk tolerance. And um, so you know, people do need to be responsible for themselves out there and understand if they get injured, it, it, it should be their responsibility to, to pay for when they go over the handlebars or whatever. And, and, and when a shop makes a mistake or a product fails, there is a path of, of recourse through, you know, insurance and litigation. And, and, you know, we recognize that too. Not sure if that answers your question, but, um, you know, uh, I think we have a very educated view on the risks associated with outdoor sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you raise a good point about just, I mean, the world <laughs> would be a better place if we all were able to sort of take responsibility. And, and it's not to say that it's always the shop's fault or it's always the customer's fault or always the bike manufacturer. It's like, you know, when it is our fault, if we take responsibility, I think, I think we'll end up on the right side. What about you, Tori? What do you, what do you think about risk? Yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, and I think my thoughts pretty much echo Rob's to the extent that, you know, I think the amount of risk that they're going to take on really should be very commensurate with the amount of effort that they are going to be willing to put forth to ensure that injury or any kind of loss is not going to happen. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to that part where I was talking about like the product recall, where I said, yes, you can think of insurance as a, as a second bank account for that one line of coverage. But uh, in, in all other areas, you know, I think it doesn't happen very often, thankfully, but every now and then, you know, 
I'll talk to a business owner who will say, look, I'm not going to invest in, I'm not going to spend all this money on like a higher security system for my shop because that's why I have insurance, you know? And yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and jump off of this cliff because I have insurance, you know, like, uh, it, it, it should be something where, you know, when it comes to insurance, uh, in general, again, that should be there not as an excuse to cut corners and not as an excuse to be willfully negligent or excessively risky. Uh, you know, I think there should always be this idea that this, there's kind of this unspoken contract of good faith that if you're going to take on such and such exposure or such and such risk, you're also going to be willing to do everything you can to do these things as safely as possible and be Mm -hmm. extra vigilant or extra responsible so that you don't have to face the worst case scenario. But yeah, obviously we certainly see the underbelly of that and we certainly experience it. As I said, like it always keeps things interesting. Um, But yeah, I think it would be nicer if people were a little bit more on on top of their game in that area um, because we don't want it to have a situation where it kind of ruins it for everyone where, you know, there's just so much liability out there. There's so much exposure where insurance carriers eventually are going to say, we're just going to pull back. We're not even going to insure this entire industry or we're not going to insure this part of the country or what have you, because if that goes away, then man, it's going to be a bit of a free for all and everyone for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we've spoken with professional athletes about this topic too and asked them about risk. And it's interesting, you know, a lot of what they say kind of parallels this idea of, um, you know, to them, when they look at something that from the outside, we would say, wow, that's really risky to them. You know, they've done their homework and they understand sort of the pros and the cons. And, you know, like, like your example with the security system, you know, if you're a business owner and you know that there's a security system out there that's going to, you know, reduce your chance of theft, then, you know, why, why would you take that risk? You know, at that point, you know, same with a professional athlete, if they can look at a jump and say, you know, I've done jumps like that before, you know, I understand sort of how it works so I can do that versus, wow, I've, I've never done anything half as big as that. Um, and that's the situation where you do want to sort of pull back or, or, you know, rely on an expert like your insurance company. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you both uh, so much for taking the time to talk about this topic that is actually much more interesting than maybe people realize, <laughs> and especially when it, when it comes to bikes. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Well, that's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye.